Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Thank you to everyone who came out to see me at Rose City Comic Con. I had a great time talking to you all about the Comics Code Authority, and I really wanted that talk to turn into a live episode. However, as anyone who's ever been to one can attest, comics conventions are fraught logistically. So we did not get audio of that panel. I'm going to have to adapt it into a pair of episodes. It's a blessing in disguise, though, because something happened at the panel that I really didn't anticipate. I ran out of time. I got the 15-minute mark to wrap up much, much sooner than I thought I would, and ended up having to rush through the last part of it. So, in this two-parter about the Comics Code Authority, uh, I am going to have more stuff in there than I had in the initial talk. If you were there at Rose City Comic Con, and you want even more things about comic books, about anti-comic book sentiment, and about the most restrictive content regime that America has ever known, well, this pair of episodes will have them. But to begin, I have always loved comics. When I was growing up, I, of course, read books, the ones I was supposed to. I read YA novels. I read novel novels, and I enjoyed them. I enjoyed them a lot. In fact, I was a precocious kid and read War and Peace in sixth grade just to show I could. It was fine. But even as I was also reading books without pictures, I was also reading books with pictures, or in some cases, books that just were pictures. I loved comics of all sorts. My first exposure to them was newspaper comics. After all, there was a time in the United States when everyone got comics delivered to their door every day, and I don't think comic book fans really take enough time to appreciate how cool that is. Also, comic books like superhero comics, Archie comics, and weird indie comics that my parents probably wouldn't have approved of, and I read anyway. All that stuff. Something that unified lots of the comics I read as a kid was a seal on the cover. It was about the size and shape of a postage stamp, and it said, Approved by the Comics Code Authority. When I was a kid in the 1980s and 1990s, I didn't really give that seal much thought. It was just something on the cover. But that seal represents the most restrictive content controls that American media has ever undergone. The Comics Code Authority, it was more restrictive than, say, the Hayes Code for movies or than the movie rating system. Imagine having a movie rating system and the only rating that you could have was G or PG or, after a certain amount of time, PG-13. Certain things you just couldn't do even with the appropriate rating or warning label or whatever. It was more restrictive than FCC guidelines. It was more restrictive than, like, probably the guidelines we had in my high school for what plays the drama department was able to put on. Yeah, the Comics Code Authority is, in a lot of ways, the apex of American media control. And it came about for two major reasons. One big reason was pervasive anti-comic sentiment 
in the mid-20th century. The other big reason was because of a concerted effort by comic book publishers to throw horror comics under the bus and make other genres and styles look good by comparison. But comic books have always had their detractors. Ever since you had comics, you had people saying they were bad for kids. And that predates comic books. That goes back to newspaper comics of the late 1800s and early 1900s. Even before Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, or Captain America, you had people saying that comic books were rotting kids' brains. One prominent critic of comic books was an American writer named Sterling North, and he had this to say about what comics did to kids. North said, quote, Badly drawn, badly written, and badly printed, a strain on young eyes and young nervous systems. Their crude blacks and reds spoil the child's natural sense of color. Their hypodermic injection of sex and murder make the child impatient with better, though quieter, stories. Unquote. And Sterling North is, I think, pretty representative of what a lot of people thought of comics at the time. Now, he might also have been a little biased. I mentioned he was an American writer. Well, he wrote novels for children. So when he looked at comics, he might have been just a little bit resentful of what he perceived as his competition. But plenty of other people felt the same way. Lots of community leaders, church leaders, and public health leaders denounced comics as being pretty bad for kids. To the point that comic book burnings were not unheard of. Now, this was not something that happened all the time on every street corner on every Friday night in the United States, but it did happen. And having a big event where you burn a bunch of media is something of a cause for alarm, even if it happens once. But the figure most identified with anti-comics sentiment in the United States was a guy called Friedrich Wortham. Friedrich Wortham was a psychologist, and I kind of want to give this guy the tiniest of fair shakes. If you talk to people who know the history of comic books, Friedrich Wortham is probably one of comics' biggest villains. But to his credit, he was a psychologist who worked in Harlem with a primarily African-American population. And I do think that he deserves just credit for also examining the effects that discrimination had on many of his young patients, on children of color. He was also a white psychologist who would treat African-American children when lots of others wouldn't. I personally believe that Friedrich Wortham's concern for children was genuine. I also think that he is indeed one of comics' greatest villains. I think that he acted in bad faith, that he cut corners, that he was not scientific, and that he didn't really have anything substantive to say about comic books or what they do to people. But what did he say? He said, basically, that comic books, the reading of comic books, led to antisocial behavior, led to something that everyone was concerned with in the 1940s and 1950s. Juvenile delinquency. Wortham wrote, quote, We found that comic book reading was a distinct influencing factor in the case of every single delinquent or disturbed child we studied, and that factor 
must be curbed as it steadily increases. Comic books, he said, rotted kids' minds and implanted them with dangerous, terrible ideas. Wortham was especially acrimonious about one genre of comics that, well, everyone identifies with comics, superheroes. When Wortham looked at Superman, he saw fascism, which is kind of funny, given that Superman was created by two Jewish guys in New York City, and in a lot of those early Superman stories, which, by the way, I think kind of hold up. Not a lot of Golden Age comics do, but I think the earliest Supermans actually are still pretty good. In a lot of those early Superman stories, he's very much the champion of the downtrodden. It's not until later on that Superman is fighting Lex Luthor, Brainiac, General Zod, Mr. Mixlepulse, however you say it, those guys. His initial enemies are criminals, yes, but but exploitative landlords, like abusive men, like terrible symbols of power and authority. And Superman, in those early stories, is always striking back on behalf of the little guy. Wortham, however, said that by looking at Superman and by wanting to be him, he thought that would he thought that would spoil a child's ability to identify with ordinary people. And eventually, by looking at Superman, they would have a kind of fascistic contempt for the ordinary. Now, I think that is kind of absurd. But I don't want to give you the impression in this episode that figures like Sterling North or Friedrich Wortham were just dogs barking at nothing. There was plenty of gnarly stuff going on in comic books in the 1940s and 1950s. For instance, one of the craziest early comic book characters was Black Widow. Not Black Widow from the Marvel movies, not Natasha Romanov, the original Black Widow, whose name was, I am not making this up, Claire Voyant. Her whole deal was that she was an assassin who worked for Satan. The conceit of Black Widow stories was that Satan, yes, the devil, the lord of darkness, the, you know, guy from Dante's Inferno who has three jaws and is chomping on some betrayers, that guy would dispatch her to go find some really terrible sinner, like some murderer or whatever, and kill them before they had a chance to repent their sins. So they would go to hell and Satan would own their soul, which I think is just an amazing conceit for a comic book. A femme fatale with a pun for a name works for Satan, murders bad guys, and sends them to hell every single story she's in. There was also stuff like what Wortham found in Batman and Wonder Woman. Wortham looked at Batman and he saw all kinds of gay subtext. He thought that the relationship between Batman and Robin was less of a father-son relationship and more of a dude and other dude in outlandish costume relationship. And to be fair, when you think about two guys who live together in an amazing mansion and dress up in fabulous outfits and go out together every night, the gay subtext isn't not there. Something I do wonder about is how many closeted gay Batman fans were reading those comics in the 1940s and 1950s, and maybe reading Batman with an eye toward a potential queer reading. It's possible. And this is something lots of people talked about. Jerry Robinson, an artist for DC, said, what Batman and Robin do between the panels is their business. So again, Wortham might have been a bit alarmist, but he wasn't wrong. And I'll add that I think gay subtext in comics is a wholly good and appropriate thing for kids to be exposed to. Heck, 
even gay text. Let Kitty Pride and Rachel Summers make out. Get on it, Marvel. Anyway, uh, another big target of Wortham's was Wonder Woman, which he saw as just dripping with S&M. And, to his credit, early Wonder Woman is just dripping with S&M. There's all kinds of ropes and binding and getting tied up and trussed up. In one early Wonder Woman issue, a bunch of the Amazons on Themyscira are dressed as deer, and a bunch of other Amazons, like, hunt them and, like, bind them by their hands and feet when they catch the deer, and then, I guess, have them? William Moulton Marston, the creator of Wonder Woman, who I did an episode on, was into that kind of thing, and he put it in his comics. When Friedrich Wortham looked at Wonder Woman and he saw a bunch of rope bondage, he was right. But superhero comics, maybe fascist Superman, potentially gay Batman, bondage Wonder Woman, that is not what lots of people were freaking out about. What most of the population who was wringing their hands about comics wrung their hands about were crime and horror comics. And a lot of those came from a company called E.C. Comics. EC Comics was founded by a guy called Max Gaines. The EC stands for Educational Comics. So it stood for Educational Comics Comics. And Max Gaines published a bunch of books with titles like Tiny Tot Comics, about jokes and talking animals and innocent stuff like that. And also Picture Stories from the Bible, which was about stuff from the Bible. However, we don't talk about EC Comics today because of what Max Gaines did. No, we talk about it because of what his son did. His son, William Gaines, or Bill Gaines, never wanted to get into comics. Bill Gaines wanted to be a high school chemistry teacher. He had a fraught relationship with his parents. He actually had an arranged marriage back when East Coast waspy people still did that, and he scandalized his parents early on by announcing he was going to get a divorce. They couldn't believe it. They were very disappointed with their son. Divorce? In the 50s? Unheard of. He had a falling out with his mom and dad, and then his dad died in a freak boating accident in upstate New York. Suddenly, after disappointing his parents so much by committing the awful tragic sin of divorce... Bill Gaines knew what he had to do. He had to put his own dreams aside. Not become a high school chemistry teacher, but instead take over the family business. Take over educational comics and continue his dad's legacy. And when he did, he found out that making Tiny Tot comics and picture stories from the Bible was not a viable business model. They were losing all kinds of money, weren't able to pay anyone, and it looked like his business would soon be about as dead as his father was. So, Bill Gaines changed direction. Crime comics, he saw, had been pretty popular. Noirish stuff, guys with guns, mafia dudes, bootleggers, scantily clad women going, ah, as guns and knives happen. He thought, what if we do that, but with supernatural elements? Take the shadows of noir and add zombies, add werewolves, Add vampires and mysterious beasts. Have macabre stories narrated by wizened hags and talking corpses. Stories of monsters, revenge, an ironic twist. And uh, I really like EC Comics. 
In my early 20s, I worked in a used bookstore, and that was an amazing opportunity to read so many old comic books that we had come in, and reading old EC collections was always a delight. The comics that Bill Gaines did, like The Vault of Horror and Tales from the Crypt and Crime Suspense Stories, didn't really have recurring characters. Instead, there were these little short stories, and there was always some kind of ironic twist at the end. So, one common story was, guy gets killed, guy rises from dead, guy exacts revenge on somebody who killed him, but as a zombie. Uh, there was also a memorable story where there are these two twin sisters who both love the same man and are fighting over him, and can't decide who should get him, so they just chop him in half and they each have one half of him, and they're happy about it. There was a story with a bunch of zombies playing baseball while using human organs and bones as safety gear. What recurring elements there were were characters like the Vault Keeper, the Crypt Keeper, and the Old Witch, these grotesque narrators who would introduce you to a story and then close you out of it oftentimes summarizing the ironic twisty ending and mocking the characters who were either dead, grotesquely triumphant, or wailing with despair. Early EC comics are totally great. They're like scary stories to tell in the dark, but in comic book form. And those really lurid crime and horror comics that Bill Gaines started putting out were hugely successful. They brought EC comics back to life. They're also something that drummed up even more anti-comic sentiment in the United States. And in the late 40s, early 1950s, you didn't have any federal law about comics, but you did have lots of states discussing potential laws that would have controlled the sale of comics to minors, which means it would have just restricted the sale of comics at all, since a lot of the people who did buy these were kids. I know we're supposed to say comics aren't for kids anymore, but... Come on, guys. Comics are for kids. They're also for 37-year-old men, like your humble podcaster. But it is a medium that has been primarily about children and adolescents. Having state legislatures discuss limitations on the sale and content of comics spooked a lot of people. It, of course, spooked comic book publishers, but it also spooked lots of people who were afraid of governments limiting what publishers could do. New York State got really close to passing an anti-comic book law. It ended up getting vetoed by Governor Dewey. He was the guy that did not defeat Harry Truman. And even though this law never went into effect, it scared people. Uh, here's what the nation had to say. They said, quote, We would be the first to acknowledge that a generation of Americans has been driven to several degrees toward illiteracy by the comic book. And it is appalling that 60,000 comic books are sold in this country every month. This being granted, however, we must put ourselves on record against the current nationwide drive to liquidate the comic book through censorship. Comic books are an opening wedge. If they can be purified, that is, controlled, newspapers, periodicals, books, films, and everything else will follow. Unquote. So the nation there said, hey, we hate comic books as much as you do, but having governments control them? We find that off-putting. However, that didn't stop a U.S. senator from getting involved. A guy called Estes Kefauver, a senator from Tennessee. Kefauver had recently become something of a celebrity by grilling members of New York crime organizations on air. 
basically he got a bunch of mafia guys, asked them a bunch of questions on television, and it was apparently riveting. It was not a trial, but it looked like he was this tough-as-nails U.S. senator putting some of the biggest figures in organized crime on trial in public. And in 1954, he was going to do the same thing with comic books. Kefauver talked to a lot of people in his comic book hearings, like Dr. Friedrich Wortham. By this time, Dr. Wortham had published a book called The Seduction of the Innocent, which kind of sounds like a pulp romance porn novel, all about how comic books were poisoning the minds of youth. I want to add that Wortham, in doing this, was not being a good scientist. Uh, he was not toiling away in his clinic, you know, doing studies with control groups and hypotheses and all that, and later on submitting his work for peer review. No. Instead, he made a bunch of observations about the kids he was treating, thought, hey, they all have social problems, and they all read comic books, therefore comic books cause social problems, uh, started publishing his essays in magazines like Ladies Home Journal, and then published a book available to the public. It all had the patina of some kind of legitimate peer-reviewed scientific study, but it wasn't. And I think that's something important to remember about Friedrich Wortham. He did some really unscientific stuff, but because he was technically a psychologist, he was able to make it look scientific. Anyway, Wortham was up there talking about how comics were bad. And the other major figure that we are concerned with today, testifying before Kefauver, was Bill Gaines. Bill Gaines was not subpoenaed to testify before this U.S. Senator's comic book subcommittee. It's not like he was forced to appear. He did so willingly. His reasoning was that everybody was talking about how bad crime and horror comics were. People were talking about how zombies and murderers and cackling old witches were corrupting children, and he, I think, was naive because he thought... Well, if I just go up there and reasonably talk about the work we create and have a discussion on television in a political atmosphere in good faith, I can persuade people, right? Ah, Bill Gaines, you sweet summer child. That is not how it played out. Instead, Wortham went up and did his usual song and dance about the corrupting power of comics, and later on, Gaines talked about the content of the books he made, talk talking about how he was writing in the tradition of Edgar Allan Poe or O. Henry. He likes to say that a lot of his Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror and Crime Suspense Stories books had what he called O. Henry endings. That is, ironic, painful twists at the end. But Estes Kefauver got into something of an exchange with him, not over any of the plot lines for what was inside a comic book, but what was on the cover. One cover of EC Comics' Crime Suspense Stories featured a murderer holding an axe in one hand and a severed head in the other. The headless body is on the floor. And Estes Kefauver asked Bill Gaines if he thought this was in good taste. He said, quote, Yes, I do. For the cover of a horror comic, I think it would be bad taste if he were holding the head a little higher so the neck would show with the blood dripping from it. After that, Gaines kind of lost his cool. He lost his cool with Wortham, and he lost his cool with Kefauver. Quoting New York Times again, asserting that he was proud of his comics, Mr. Gaines said, 
It would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid. The truth is, he argued, that delinquency is a product of the real environment in which a child lives and not the fiction he reads, unquote. It's easy for a modern person reading that New York Times article from 1954 to be on Bill Gaines's side and to put your fist in the air and see him as a triumphant truth teller, somebody who's really sticking it to the man, telling this fussy old psychologist and this media-hungry senator just what he really thinks and why horror comics are awesome and werewolves are awesome and zombies and severed heads are cool, man. Don't you like fun? Don't you like rock and roll? Rock and roll hasn't been invented yet, but you know what I mean. That's not how it played in 1954, though. In 1954, Bill Gaines's testimony before Kefauver's subcommittee backfired. It engendered a lot of bad faith in a lot of people who already had bad faith about comics. And it made horror comics in particular look really egregious. Like, what's wrong with severed heads, man? Why would anyone say that? Two people who weren't at the Senate subcommittee but who were watching live on television were Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, the creators of Captain America. And when Jack Kirby saw Bill Gaines telling off a U.S. senator and a celebrity psychologist on live TV, he thought, stupid, stupid, stupid. This, thought Kirby, and a lot of other folks in comics, just made things worse. Next episode, comic book publishers get together, form a code, and throw Bill Gaines, EC Comics, and Horror Comics in general under the bus. And once they have that code, they have to deal with an extremely strict content regime for over 50 years. (laughs) 